Hello and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. My name is John Denny, and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute. SSI Live is returning after a two-year break. In fact, it was exactly two years ago today, July 23rd, 2018, that we last recorded an episode of SSI Live. Sabbatical and other writing projects delayed our return, but we're now back and we're eager to bring you engaging, insightful commentary, ideas, and content from the team at the Strategic Studies Institute. So, without further ado, today I'm joined by my SSI colleagues, Nate Fryer and John Schaus. Nate is a research professor of National Security Studies, and John is a visiting professor from the think tank CSIS, located in Washington, D.C. Earlier this week, Nate, John, and three co-authors published a piece at the National Security blog, Defense One, entitled, the U.S. is out of position in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, this essay is based on their just-published and much longer study on U.S. Indo-PACOM hypercompetition and U.S. Army theater design. That study began in mid-2018, about the time that we last recorded and broadcast an SSI Live podcast, and was the product of a large research and analysis team comprised of Nate, John, our SSI colleague Trey Braun, other War College professors, and several War College students. You can download that study now for free at our website, ssi.armywarcollege.edu. And since that study was begun about two years ago and, and just uh, was published recently, there's no better way to jump back into SSI Live than to ask uh, two of the authors, uh, Nate and John, uh, to discuss that, that study as well as their Defense One essay. So, Nate, John, welcome. Thank you, John. Thanks for having us. Now, let me let me first ask you guys about the context that you uh, you wrote this study in, that your Defense One essay exists in. Can you kind of set the scene for us, if you will? Tell us about uh, what stands out to you most in this contemporary Indo-Pacific security environment. Absolutely, John. This is John Schaus. The, the context we're operating in is one of both. Uh, the logical progression of long-term trends and, and a situation that is the U.S. is having a hard time adapting. And what this is based on is both 20 years of Chinese uh, deliberate actions of uh, investing in careful military capabilities, pursuing a, a gradual economic policy that expands its economic opportunities, and one where the United States and most of its allies haven't been following the trend lines in China, both on its economic and military development in a way that would allow us to adapt. We have assumed a certain trajectory for China, and China hasn't followed that trajectory like we would like. So where does that leave us today? It leaves us in a position where China's military is growing stronger, more capable, and more expeditionary, where its uh, economy is both uh, strong domestically, strong globally, and expanding for both market access and resource consumption, and where China's political situation is one where its domestic situation needs a strong economy, it needs a strong military, but it's brittle and fragile. And so that 
China's leaders are decreasingly willing to accept anything other than their own solutions to international problems. Why does that matter for the United States? Because the U.S. has longstanding interests in the region, starting back 100 years ago with initial trade voyages to the, to the Indo-Pacific region. But far more concretely, in the last 70 years, the United States has developed a web of allies and partners, uh, notably with mutual defense treaties with Japan, South Korea, Australia, the Philippines, and close partners such as Taiwan, uh, emerging partners like India, Vietnam, and Indonesia. And all of those countries are feeling pressure from China in one way or another. Many of them are territorial pressures or resource expansion pressures. Others, uh, as Australia has recently noted, are political pressures and attempts by China to influence their domestic political situation. So all of this leaves the United States in what we have characterized as a hyper-competitive environment where countries are not seeking primacy or supremacy in the way uh, defense analysts and practitioners think of those terms, but instead hyper-competition is the pursuit of a transient advantage, one where you won't preserve that advantage forever, but you may achieve it long enough to exploit it for your benefit. And that is the situation we find ourselves in today. All right, John, I appreciate you explaining that for us and sort of setting the, the context. Now, let's jump into your study and the arguments you guys are making there and at the Defense One essay. The, the critical argument, I think, if I could put it in a nutshell, and I, I think you explain it this way, is that physically, conceptually, and in terms of capabilities, the U.S. is, as you say, out of position for multi-domain competition and multi-domain conflict with China, both in the medium term and over the long term. So let's let's try to unpack that a bit for our audience. First, Explain to me what you mean by out of position physically. What do you mean by that? Well, look, I mean, here's the deal with the, with the United States. I mean, just sort of look at a map and you see the challenge that the United States has physically in the Indo-Pacific. There's extremely long lines of communication from the West Coast of the United States at a minimum all the way out to the limits of our military presence in South Korea and Japan, for example. Along the way, you have these outposts in Hawaii, Guam, and, and very little in between. And then what you really have is you have this concentration of American military power in, in a largely administrative sort of arrangement in Northeast Asia, which is not really positioned in any way to influence the military decision-making of the PRC. It's very vulnerable. It, it is largely constrained by, in, in many respects, constrained by allied caveats and things like that, specifically as it relates to how we maneuver against the PRC. And then, of course, obviously, our forces in Korea are largely devoted to the defense of Korea, which doesn't really provide, provide, provide us a lot of flexibility with those forces as it applies uh, to, the, to the PRC problem. So that's the physical component. Okay, tell me about now conceptually. What do you mean by the argument that we're out of position conceptually? Well, so conceptually, I'd say, look, we've had a, the, 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 the Chinese have had a 20-year head start on us, right? Like, China initiated somewhere around the, you know, turn of the millennium, initiated a pretty comprehensive military transformation. That transformation was focused on foreclosing U.S. military operation or military options in the Indo-PACOM theater. Um, our answer to that has largely been a very disjointed service-specific approach where we have really sort of allowed our individual service co components from the Army, the Air Force, Marine Corps, Navy, to develop their own operating concepts without the benefit of any kind of unifying joint operational rubric under which they operate and stitch these very well-meaning concepts together. So in that regard, some of these concepts might, might very well be the right answer, 
um, in a very discreet, service-specific um, manner. But the, the real challenge is that the dependencies have never been tested. The, the, the chapeau coordination that's required to actually exercise military action, you know, across domains, you know, with the various services has never really been stitched together in what we call kind of a unifying joint concept for competition and conflict. Okay, so a, a lack of jointness, if you will, and among all these uh, these concepts of operations and, and the way ahead uh, for the U.S. security in the Pacific. Now, let's jump to the last of these now. Uh, in terms of capabilities, how do you mean we're out of position with regard to our capabilities? Well, look, the theater really, I mean, the theater commander and the, the perspective of the theater, if you sort of read the tea leaves and where they were much more agile and distributed sort of set of options in the theater. That sounds very buzzwordy, but by and large, the, the twin tyrannies of distance and Chinese military transformation are militating against us being, being able to operate effectively from our very concentrated locations in Northeast Asia, stretch in relatively rapid manner across the theater to generate complicated dilemmas for a PRC rival that you know wants to actually uh, get up to no good. Now again, we don't have a, a large number of options other than to sort of fight from our very static positions right now or deter from those positions. And frankly, just the idea of deterrence alone is, is, is dubious, right? It's very difficult to deter a rival from a position of gross vulnerability. Okay, so out of position in these three different ways. John, do you want to add, add anything to that? Just briefly. Uh, Two, two ideas that we discuss frequently as we develop the research and the, the report for this study is piggybacking on Nate's idea of out of position conceptually. The way we made that a nutshell in our discussions is that force generation is service specific, but force employment is a joint endeavor. And right now the disparate service concepts aren't leading to a, as Nate alluded to, a ready-made joint force solution. The, the joint force commander is, is left to stitch uh, these disparate concepts together. And that's relevant when it comes to capabilities because the service-specific concepts often assume enabling capabilities from the other services that the other services deprioritize as they focus on their warfighting contributions as opposed to their enabling contributions. Without that joint concept and the service enabling capabilities, it's very difficult to imagine a successful joint campaign. And so the key areas where we see this as important are command and control, communications, um, logistics and sustainment, and on movement, particularly intra-theater movement. Yeah, and it's fascinating. There's probably an another study on organizational behavior and service rivalry to unpack here in your work. But let's jump ahead now to some of the recommendations that fall out of these problems you've identified. And, and I, I'm probably doing the study, admittedly, a disservice. It's a really a thorough work, uh, and I would commend it to our listeners. But we're going to jump ahead a little bit in the interest of time to talk about the recommendations. Now, you guys argue, your team argues, that the Army ought to embrace what you call four transformational roles in the Indo-Pacific theater. And I'd like you to try to explain those. So first, what do you mean by the Army as the grid? So the, the Army as the grid is the Army identifying with other services, but taking the lead in identifying physical locations throughout the region from which a joint force could operate. It isn't where it must be operating all the time. These are places, not bases, in the current nomenclature. 
And it could be a range of different types of facilities, depending on the mission need of a given activity. So we could imagine like undeveloped landing, beach landing locations, airports, airfields, warehouses, all the way down to golf courses or large parking lots to do medevac helicopters or uh, HADR helicopter landings, for example. And the grid in our mind is established at three levels. The first is clusters. So a cluster is a, a sub-region within the Indo-PACOM AOR. And there's many different ways one could imagine that being, but we imagined probably eight to 10 of these clusters. Within the clusters, we have hubs. And hubs are kind of focal, focal points for command and control within the cluster and probably for, for major uh, asset locations to do movement and maneuver and logistics and other kinds of activities. And at the, at the bottom end of that, that echeloning, that those three elements, we have clusters at the top, hubs in the middle, the bottom are nodes. And these are the actual operating locations where, for example, a helicopter could land or a rocket or artillery battery could be in place for a short time or a radar mast or any number of other uh, asset. And taken together, that's what we mean by the Army as the grid. All right. Well, let me ask you to explain just a little bit and maybe give us some examples. I mean, I, it, it's obvious to me this falls out of your argument that the Army is out of position in terms of its, uh, it, it, physically speaking, it's out of position. Where do you, and, and I think that makes perfect sense, right? We have a lot of be- eggs in the basket of Northeast Asia. Where do you see this grid unfolding? Give me some examples or locations where you think this might need to uh, to play out. So ideally, uh, we would see this playing out across the entirety of the region in different ways. So in, in the report, we talk about locations being hot, warm, or cold. And a cold location is one where you know where it is, you know what it could do, but it's not actually doing anything right now. A warm location is a location where, and this is where we would get to more in the discussion of the Army as the enabler, but a warm location has caretaker or, or keeps the lights on kind of uh, present there, able to rapidly expand to a hot location, which doesn't mean that there's fighting in the hot sense. It means it's fully operational for what it's are. So where could this be? This could be, for example, in Japan, where we're dealing with another tsunami and earthquake disaster relief, or in the Philippines for the same type of purpose. It could be Malaysia, if there is some sort of problem there where they seek assistance from the United States. We could be working on a grid location in the Indian Ocean region in response to piracy or some sort of terrorist activity there where a country there has asked for help. So the grid is both scalable, flexible, and region-wide across the entirety of the Indo-PACOM AOR. Now, I think that's a good segue into the second role that you guys say the Army needs to take on, and that is to become the enabler. I understand from your study that this is based on the critique that uh, in pursuit of this multi-domain operations concept that the Army has embraced and its uh, its big six acquisition priorities these days, that the Army lacks sufficient joint integration. Uh, but can you clarify for us what you mean by enabler and how would it facilitate more jointness or improve jointness in the Army's approach to date? How I would say we've talked about the enabler role, which is the Army as an enabler, is the enabling function would be both the, the Army bringing the capabilities and the personnel necessary to animate the grid, right? The grid is simply the physical location. And until they are animated, until they are enabled, they're just spots on a map. And the, the purpose of the Army as the enabler is that 
of all of the services, only the Army, we think, has the capacity, the number of people, the, the depth of, of that talent magazine, if you will, to adequately animate across the variety of locations that we're talking about. Only the Army has the, the requisite fuel trucks and communications operators and logisticians to, to make all of that come together. And so when we talk about the Army as the enabler, that's, that's the first thing in our mind. Uh, you mentioned the, the priority of the big six on war fighting. There, there is an element to that for us. Um, and uh, as we point out in our Defense One article, the order of the recommendations matters. So you have to have a grid in order to enable it. You have to have the enablers to, to really underwrite the joint mission, not just for the Army, but for the entire joint force. Because uh, it's hard to imagine the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps adequately uh, populating the entirety of the theater while they're focused on the warfighting mission in, in, a mission, in a theater that looks like Indo-PACOM. And so the reason the enabler is the second recommendation is increasing the priority of those enabling capabilities within the, the Army's overall approach to modernization. The third recommendation you have is that the, uh, the Army should take on the role of the multi-domain warfighter. Yeah, so look, the multi-domain warfighter, warfighter role is essentially that 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 is the that's the coin of the realm for the army right now, right? I mean, that is their that is what what they are hanging their hat on, in particular in the Indo-PACOM AOR, but but more broadly, they are attempting to build sort of a multi-domain warfighting capability with formations to support it, et cetera. The way we see this particular aspect is look, proceed with that, recognize that that's going to be an, an important contribution for the Army as it relates to the warfight in the Indo-PACOM AOR, in the same way that agile combat employment, uh, distributed maritime operations, um, or expeditionary advanced base operations, to use all the other service concepts in a row, in the same way that those concepts are important, multi-domain warfighting is going to be important as well. But we would actually add a caution to that, and John's point on the order of presenting the uh, recommendations is correct. That can't be the sum total of the Army contribution to the uh, to the joint warfight in the theater, in addition to them developing multi-domain warfighting capabilities in the same way they are right now, testing and fielding them, which is very important to the grand sort of Indo-PACOM commander's design for the theater. Think about a much more comprehensive transformation in mission command, protection, sustainment, information and intelligence and movement. It all goes hand in glove. So if you have a grid, you have the grid, you have the army enabling the grid, and you have the Army as a multi-domain warfighter, the multi-domain warfighting component of the Army is going to benefit from the other two in the same way that the Air Force and the Navy and the Marine Corps will benefit from the previous two as well. All right, now finally, you guys recommend the Army take on the role of the capability and capacity generator. Now here you're talking about something that's really near and dear to my own work, my own writing, and that is the role of allies and partners and utility of security cooperation. So let me ask you uh, specifically, you think the Army needs to make the most effort here, geographically speaking? So, you know, in terms of what partners do you think uh, need to be brought to the fore, need to be emphasized most, and then functionally? So, like, what, what kind of capabilities and capacities do you think the Army needs to be focused on with those key allies? Well, so the Army's going to have to sustain what it already does in the theater, right, which is it is, the in many ways, uh, alongside the Marine Corps, those two services are sort of, you know, land force partners of choice for many of our allies and partners in the region. 
And, and so they're going to have to maintain that, right? There's, and there's, there's going to be a lingering extremist challenge. There's going to be a ling- lingering internal security problem for many of our allies. And we have a great deal to contribute in that regard with our land forces uh, going forward. We think as important is going to be the Army's contribution to building a, a vibrant, capable, and active land-based multi-domain warfighting network, right? Like, so if we're building multi-domain warfighting capability to influence to contribute to the U.S. joint fight and to influence the decision making of the Chinese, we certainly can enlist our allies in the same in the same process. The Japanese, for example, are very focused on building a multi-domain force and are really eager to actually partner with the United States to build multi-domain com- capability that ranges from long-range precision fires, you know, short of ship sort of fires, uh, electronic warfare, space assets, etc. Similar to the Australians. And then even when you get to get to partners like sort of, so for example, the Philippines or other partners in, in Southeast Asia, you have the ability with partners like that to look, if they don't want to develop capabilities that may be provocative, for example, the Chinese, they do need capabilities that do nest very well in the multi-domain fight. And by that, I mean, think, you know, maritime domain awareness, intelligence sharing, targeting, those kinds of things that, that give them advanced capabilities for their own security and at the same time allow the United States to have a partner that has a very useful asset in the theater to which U.S. US multi-domain forces can kind of plug in and sort of exploit to to prosecute combat operations. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for uh, explaining this to us. I know we have probably not done the study justice in terms of the time that we should devote to it, given it's its breadth and its depth, and I apologize for that, but uh, you've given us a really great overview of the study, and uh, I'm really grateful for for both of you joining us. Uh, Nate Fryer, John Schaus, thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure being here. Thank you, John. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website. That's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.